Welcome to Tools for Liberty, a program designed to intrigue you, to stir your nerves, and to offer your mind critical thinking and adventure. I'm Jay Dillon Proctor. And I'm Amanda Sparrow. And I'm Anthony Alegria. Alright, so today um, we are going to be discussing some questions that were asked of us. Then we're going to do Hot Knot or Sanctified, which is how we discuss uh, some elements of church history. And we're going to be talking about St. Francis of Rome and Perpetua's Diary. Finally, then we'll close with a devotional. So, All right, so we're going to begin with answering a few questions which you have presented to us. So we're just going to begin with these, and we're going to try to get through as many of them as we can. For, for time purposes, we may not be able to get through them all, but we'll certainly do the best we can. So Anthony, if you'll go ahead and start sharing these questions with us. The first question, how do we correct the wedge that is driven between our society? Is it okay to sidestep laws to drive an emotional feeling to show you are a better person? Or for our purposes, this is a question between objectivity or feelings. Yeah, for, for simple purposes, we're going to address this as sort of the fact or feeling mentality. My answer to this question is we really have to, to be able to function as people of critical thinking. And what I mean by that is there is a time when there is an emotional response that is sort of needed, but that time doesn't last for for a great amount of time. Sort of like when there are children, things can happen in a child's life which can upset them and the parent may come and bring them comfort and consolation in that moment. But once that moment is passed, there is a time for, for maturity. And this kind of goes back to some of our previous conversations when we were talking about people who are trying to manipulate you. When people are using a long-term strategy that's based off of an emotional mentality instead of one that is more logical or reasonable, usually that's a red flag that people aren't being totally honest with you. They may not have evidence or facts on their side, so they're trying to be emotionally compelling, whereas opposed to people being rational and creating a policy based off of something reasonable. So my answer to that question would be, in the short term, there is a need for, for emotions. People may be reacting to something. Whenever people have a crisis in life, a lot of times they are emotional. But once you get to the long term, we need to be critical thinkers who can think objectively about this. We don't just sidestep objectivity to to have a long-term emotional. Amanda, what are your thoughts? Well, I think because this question is kind of confusing, the person wrote it. So whoever submitted this question, if you feel like we're not quite getting where you were trying to go, please just ask the question again and we will try to answer it better. But um, as far as how we're kind of interpreting this of objectivity versus feeling, yeah, Often we create these as two opposites that cannot coexist healthfully. And so feelings and emotions and also uh, logic and objectivity each have their place. And we have to learn where that place is and how best to use that. And that starts with a place, as you said, Dylan, with some critical thinking and understanding how we mature and grow and use everything, at our, uh, all the resources at our disposal in order to better ourselves and our community. And we won't, and if we do that, that we won't find emotions and objectivity being at odds of each other if they're used appropriately. And I would like to reiterate a point you made there, Amanda, because it's so fantastic. We have to move away from this sort of false dichotomy mentality that everything is A or B. You can't have a balance between the two. And I think that's a great point, especially when we're responding to crises that emerge in reality. We have to be able to console people, but also be objective. I think that's, that's an excellent thought. Well, Anthony, what do we have next? Question two, religion in schools. All right, so this one is interesting. And I was when I was reading this, it was presented to me um, personally. There was a bit of a context around that about they're trying to teach their kids. They're having their kids start reading scripture and things, their, their younger children. And they know some of their, their teachers are Christian. And even from outside of that, I, I know people who are school teachers. There's always the question of, are the teachers at risk of being Christian? 
because if they do anything which reveals their faith, the, the heavy hand of the school may crack down on them. And my answer to this is we really need to define what religion is as we deal with the question of how does religion exist in schools because we have a lot of people who may not confess to worship a God or may not confess any allegiance to a God who are unquestionably religious. And somehow these people have able to, been able to fly under the radar of trying to purge Christianity from schools, though they will use the arm of the government to preach against school. We have a lot of anti-theists who are, who are involved in schools. And as we understand the law, not only does it say that the government shouldn't be advocating for religion, but it also can't be advocating against it. So that's an argument that I think needs to be brought up in this topic. And at the same time, I really think we need a good working definition of what religion is because you see a lot of, for instance, religious environmentalists who, who feel like they can manipulate within the environment of, of government schools. And that's, that's a bit of a problem for me. So my answer to that is we need a good definition of this. And, of course, we need to pray for those who are of the faith. Amanda, what are your thoughts? Um, I think something referencing a conversation we had probably a couple of weeks ago, it's been of um, understanding whose responsibility it is to educate and teach children. Um, and it starts in the home. And so often, as like this person's asking you, I think is, you know, they've, they've taught their children, they're afraid when their children goes to school, it may cause trouble for the teachers. And most teachers are aware of kind of where their their district, their principal, whoever's in charge of them has kind of made that line. But ultimately, if we want to see things to better in our culture, we shouldn't wait and stop um, for the powers to be to kind of allow prayer back in school. And that's something I've heard a lot of people say is like, well, reason our country's so bad is because we didn't we don't pray in school anymore. And that can be an element, but that's a very complex answer, I think, to that question. So as we continue this conversation of religion's place in schools, especially if particularly we're saying Christianity in schools, we have to understand regardless of what our government does, regardless of what the rules are, our responsibility is to be a people of faith. Um, and so that's how we should, I think, continue that conversation. Excellent. Excellent. What do we have next, Anthony? What are your thoughts on state-level health care aid like TenCare? This is a quote. My wife, kids, and I were on 10 care for a bit, and it helped us a ton. But I'm sure it is being abused, though, too. I'm sure there is an ethical approach to its value as well. All right, so this one is interesting. I wasn't expecting to get this question, but I'm, I'm really glad that we did, because it actually relates into our hot, not or sanctified, as we talk about St. Francis of Rome. And it's interesting, this question. It's obviously a question of how do we interact with healthcare, And from the Christian perspective, what is the ethical relationship with the healthcare industry? And I think it's interesting that they brought up not anything federal, but they brought up the state level health care. And I thought that was really quite interesting because I think the more local we can get health care, the better we're going to be. The more we can have it where it's within our own reach, the better we're going to be. But also to the idea of state-run, state-level healthcare. I think there's always an opportunity for people to take advantage of things. There are people who need help. I think there just needs to be really good checks and balances for that. As a Christian and the ethical side of this, I really wish that we didn't live in the day and age we live in now. And you might say, why in the world would you say that we have some of the best healthcare we have in the world? And that's true. I love the, the modern amenities we have, but I wish that the morality we had around healthcare was something which is a bit more older and a bit more traditional. And what I mean by that is in the past, we see people who come and say, I personally am going to open up a hospital. Again, they didn't have public safety nets like state level healthcare, anything like that. But instead you would actually see like local parishes, you would have local church communities, you'd have different people 
who would give alms towards this sort of thing. You would have people who say, well, we're going to donate for this out of our own pockets and we're going to be within our own community seeing where the money's going. And a lot of really good productive things would happen with that when it was very locally done and it was people voluntarily giving towards things and that personal investment would beget some, some really productive things. And I wish that we could adopt that more local personal involvement set of healthcare instead of some sort of broad one size fits all that is so riddled with bureaucracy that it's, it's, we don't even know. We don't know how many people are taking advantage of it and how many people are legitimately benefiting from it because it's so detached from us all and it's so bureaucratic. There's a lot of room for corruption and unknown there. Amanda, your thoughts? Um, I think as this person say, sharing that they were a part of this and, and my husband and I were part of the marketplace on a federal level for a little while while we were uh, students and things like that, that there, there shouldn't be any kind of shame that's associated with using these aids. Um, if people need them and are going to use them rightly, then that's perfectly fine. And again, as a community, a faith community, we have to try our best to participate in those things that are helping others and also keeping others accountable so that they aren't abused or mistreated so that they can be used to the best of their ability. And again, we don't find our strength or we find our reliance or help solely in these things. And so as Dylan said, sometimes that means partnering with the community, uh, our local churches, or even our district, however we can to see how we can best help those around us in need. All right, and let's move on. The next question is one relating to baptism, and this one is, is really good. Anthony? Is baptism the same thing as salvation? Okay, so this one is is almost such a short question, it's easy to to overlook, but is baptism the same thing as salvation? And this is an excellent question, and it's one where there will be people picketing at your, your door no matter what way you really answer this. So I'm going to try to do this in the most um, honorable and yet delicate way as possible. I think as we look to the gospel message, I think there's one prominent example I'd like to point out. When Jesus is on the cross and there's the thief on the cross next to him, there's the, the repentant thief whose sentiment is, I realize I've messed up. I'm not even worthy to be on this cross next to you. Lord, please just remember my name. And Jesus' response to me, response to him is, today you will be with me in paradise. Now, obviously, what I like about this is we actually see Jesus interacting with someone. We see the, the transformation, the repentance, the entering into the kingdom. And we also get it in an entirely closed system because the man obviously passes away on the cross just as Christ is there on the cross. And what we find from this is obviously this man didn't have time to be baptized in running water or even as the, the ancient text of the Didache would, would regulate with three um, times dropping the water on someone. But what we see happening here is, is Christ's testimony, his ministry, and even the, the very presence of the Holy Spirit is able to pro provide people the cleansing necessary for salvation. Salvation can come from Christ, even though people may not have the opportunity to be baptized. I highly encourage people to be baptism or to be baptized, but baptism and salvation, they are a little bit different, though they do go hand in hand with one another. When you say that they are different, a lot of times people will say, Well, you're saying baptism isn't necessary. I'm not making the case against baptism. I'm simply saying salvation is something which is important and, and God has mercy on those who, who are saved, though they may not have had the opportunity to be baptized. Amanda? So baptism, um, in Church of Nazarene, we have two sacraments, is baptism and Holy Communion or Eucharist. And all that that means is sacrament is is an outward sign of an inner inward grace. It is a means of grace by which we participate in God's grace. So all those kind of weird phrases to mean this is God has done something in our lives 
and we are participating with God in redeeming and helping the world. And we want to show it in a very specific and traditional way or through tradition. And so that is, so again, to Dylan's point, they're not, salvation and baptism aren't the same thing, but they can go hand in hand. And it is something that definitely should be a part of a Christian's uh, walk in life. Very good. And what is the fifth question? And we'll wrap up with this fifth question before moving on to our next segment. Do you have a practical approach or thoughts on the person that asks for money at the parking lot or gas station? Okay. I like this question because it allows us to have a, a broader conversation about charity. I think we need to have clear minds when we come to the question of charity. I very much believe charity is an important virtue in the faith, but at the same time, we don't want to be enabling people to do antisocial and terrible things. And my answer to this and a practical approach to the people asking for money is this. Develop a policy as an individual or a family for how you're going to deal with this. Myself, I realize that there is a difference between people who are comfortable in a certain situation of people who are circumstantially unfortunate. There are people who are resistant to transformation and those who are willing to embrace it. I don't personally like to use the word homeless because I think it blurs the lines between some, some very distinct categories. But my, my policy is this. I have a policy. I don't generally carry cash. And whenever I see people come to me, you can usually read the situation and tell where people are at. If somebody is legitimately unfortunate in their circumstance, I say, well, I'll, I'll take you somewhere, get you something, get, put gas in your car. I don't give them the money, but I will do something where they can have a resource. We'll go somewhere together. But there's a little bit of accountability there. But when it comes to people who are very clearly trying to be manipulative, then I just flat out tell them my policy. Our policy on this is we, we can't enable people in these sorts of situations. We'll help you get somewhere. If you would like me to give you a number or a contact where we can get you to a better place or even I'll come back and meet you, we can go that route. But my policy is we don't just hand out things without any any qualification attached to that. Well, and I think that's good. And also, um, everyone can get to know what are the agencies that help in your community. So here in Nashville, we have the Nashville Rescue Mission, and we also have Room in the End. And understanding those places and how they work and the programs that are through them is sometimes, it's not heartless to tell those people, I don't have cash or I can't give you any cash, but maybe I can help you get to a place that can give you long, both emergency and long-term care. And so understanding what either your local church or other organizations can do can be a great thing to add to your policy of how you handle this. And like Dylan said, we can you can usually read the situation and know if someone is it really truly in dire need that you can help immediately or if it's just someone that's um, pandering. And so just develop uh, good skills with how to interact with other people and understanding um, how you can best help them. And I know we've run a little bit long in this segment, but I have one last point that I'd like to make. And I know we've run a bit long. We've talked in the past about using the Lord's name in vain and how this is not just about the the use of guttural swear words, but this is really applying things to God that are not necessarily from God. When people say, oh, you're not a Christian if you don't give me something, that really is using the Lord's name in vain. It's misapplying God for people to be manipulative. And a lot of people in this situation, they don't know how to handle that that really abuse of the name of God and the abuse of, of the character of God. But but don't give people a pass for, for using the Lord's name in vain. But at the same time, when people read the situation, when there's legitimate needs, we, we are called to be people of charity. All right. Well, we'll be back here in a moment to do Hot, Not, or Sanctified.
All right. For our next segment, we are going to get into church history through hot, not, or sanctified. In this segment, we will examine two items from church history. They may be saints, doctrines, or any substantial feature from church history. We will present an overview of each item and then go around asking if these are hot theological inspirations or not. In rare cases, when we cannot decide if an item is hot, not, we may simply state sanctified. And when an item is considered sanctified, we are not saying that the item is necessarily holy, but instead that only God's sanctified judgment can rule hot or not because we cannot. Naturally, this last option is only to be used in the rarest of cases when the item is too far beyond our discernment. So let's go ahead and get right into this. We're going to be talking about St. Francis of Rome and Perpetuous Diary. However, Amanda has gone out to talk with our resident anchorite, Athanasius, to see if she could get some information on these two. So let's cut to Amanda outside and see what we can find out. Thank you for joining us outside. We are with our resident anchorite, Athanasius. Athanasius, are you with us? All right, so we have a couple of history questions we wanted to ask you. The first is about St. Francis of Rome. Do you have any information about her? Seems like there's something. Oh, thank you so much. Got a rather tattered scroll here, but we will investigate more about that and talk about her. Also, our second question was about Perpetua's diary. So do you have anything about her diary or the things that she's written? Oh, we actually have that right here. We have Perpetuous Diary. So we're going to read this and talk about that, and then we'll do our segment about hot or not. Thank you, Athanasius. All right. Very interesting. A, a handwritten copy of, of Perpetuous Diary itself. Well, let's get right into St. Francis of Rome. This is different than St. Francis of Assisi. But, Anthony, would you share with us the history of St. Francis? This is from franciscanmedia.org. We find that Francis's life combines aspects of secular and religious life. A devoted and loving wife, she longed for a lifestyle of prayer and service, so she organized a group of women to minister to the needs of Rome's poor. Born of wealthy parents, Francis found herself attracted to the religious life during her youth, but her parents objected and a young nobleman was selected to be her husband. As she became acquainted with her new relatives, Frances soon discovered that the wife of her husband's brother also wished to live a life of service and prayer. So the two, Frances and Venosa, set out together, with their husband's blessing, to help the poor. Frances fell ill for a time, but this apparently only deepened her commitment to the suffering people she met. The years passed, and Francis gave birth to two sons and a daughter. With the new responsibilities of family life, the young mother turned her attention more to the needs of her own household. The family flourished under Francis's care, but within a few years, a great plague began to sweep across Italy. It struck Rome with devastating cruelty and left Francis' second son dead. In an effort to help alleviate some of the suffering, Francis used all of her money and sold her possessions to buy whatever the sick might possibly need. When all the resources had been exhausted, Francis and Venosa went door to door begging. Later, Francis' daughter died, and the saint opened a section of her house as a hospital. Francis became more and more convinced that this way of life was so necessary for the world, and it was not long before she requested and was given permission to find a society of women bound by no vows. They simply offered themselves to God and to service of the poor. Once the society was established, 
Frances chose not to live at the community residence, but rather at home with her husband. She did this for seven years until her husband passed away, and then came to live the remainder of her life with the society, serving the poorest of the poor. Okay, so one of the elements about this story which is so fascinating, especially with one of the questions we answered earlier about state and local health care aid from the government, is this idea of her call in life is to help those who are less fortunate, and she actually opens up a hospital in her home in the middle of a plague. And I think this is something which I really wish we were able to do more in our own life, but now with with various regulations and things with the government, it's it's really hard to do something like this. But at the same time, I really like the idea of the personal responsibility and the personal initiative taken in that. Well, let's ask, hot, not or sanctified? Amanda? Um, I think something I picked up on was the was Francis's creation of a society. So because she was married and had a family life, she couldn't become a nun or a part of a convent. And so she still started this own group of, of ladies that would dedicate themselves to prayer and to works of mercy. And I think it just shows that um, she could balance both ministry life and a personal life. And that's something I think lots of ministers or people thinking about going to ministry um, are scared of. And she was able to do that. Also, she was, regardless of her position in life, she was still able to serve. And so um, I think that's a great inspiration for everyone, regardless of where you see yourself in any kind of position in the church or not in a position in the church, you are still called to be uh, servants and to see how you can work within that. So I'm going to say hot on this one, definitely. Anthony? I would definitely say, I would definitely say hot. Um just that type of level of dedication, everything that she did to bless others. And not to mention also, you know, she did it really gracefully in terms of um, the relation to her husband and her children, you know. She didn't leave them or anything until it was a completely appropriate time. So she really did her best to um, be a blessing to everyone that she could be. Yeah, and I think this is interesting. And, and are you hot as well, Anthony? On this? Yes. Okay. <laughs> and I, I also think this is hot as well. Um, again, a lot of times when we hear that they didn't make vows, that usually means they're not making vows of, of celibacy. What they're doing is they're saying we're still going to be people who can live within our, our own home with our own families and build a, a Christian community in our home. But we're also going to build something outside of our family life, which is dedicated to serving the Lord. Again, I think it's fantastic. I love the idea of, again, when there's a crisis, we don't look to government to solve the problem. But instead, we're going to open up a hospital here and now, and we're going to do the best we can to help people. I realize we live in a different day and age, and there are government things which have taken those roles, and the church really is put in a weird place where it can't serve in that capacity as it did in the past. But I really like the inspiration from that, so definitely hot. Well, let's move on to our next topic. And this is going to be not a person, but actually a diary. It's in one of the earliest texts we have in Christianity. It is St. Perpetua's Diary. And this is something from around the year 203 AD. And it's very important to the early history of the church. So let's hear a little bit of St. Perpetua's story. I'm going to have Anthony read out of the diary here in a moment, but I just want to let you know who she is. Like St. Francis, St. Perpetua was a noble person. She was a noble woman. And what we see happening with these these ladies are they're converted, even though it's a little bit of, of taboo for them to do so, but they're, they're going to be faith, even though it may harm their stature. So St. Perpetua, she was converted at a, a young age, a young adult, maybe late teens, early 20s. She's converted into the faith, and she realizes that there is a, a purge going on of Christians. Her father, who is a pagan, really does not want this to happen to his daughter. 
Perpetua, she has a young child at this time. And again, she's a young mother. She's, we presume that she was married and her husband died, that she's a widow. So we've got this young widow with a, an infant and she's just converted to Christianity and she's just beginning her education to, to be baptized. She's been saved, but she hadn't yet been baptized. She's in the process of this. And she realizes that they are coming for the Christians to take them off to something like the Colosseum or an amphitheater where they're going to have them be brutally killed in front of the masses. People are going to come in and buy tickets to see Christians be martyred, and she's one of these young Christians. Again, it wasn't fear that converts her into the faith, but instead her, her acceptance of the call of God and her admiration of other Christians, including her mother, is what inspires her to become a Christian. She goes into this situation realizing she's about to die. She has a young child that's been taken away from her. She has this terrible choice to make. Do I recant my faith and have my child back? Or do I stay close to the call of God, even though it's going to cost me my family? Her father, in the midst of this, asks her the question, you know, what if you call this vase? If Are you going to be a Christian? Her, her dad wants her to, to renounce her faith, to call herself something else. And she says, you cannot call that vase anything other than what it is. It is a vase. You cannot call me anything other than a Christian because that is what I am. And she's taken away to be killed. Anthony, I want you to read a bit from the diary and we can see if we can be inspired from this. Now the day of contest was approaching and my father came to see me overwhelmed with sorrow. He started tearing the hairs from his beard and threw them on the ground. He then threw himself on the ground and began to curse his old age and to say such words as would move all creation. I felt sorry for his unhappy old age. The day before we were to fight with the beast, I saw the following vision. Pomp Pomponius, the deacon, came to the prison gates and began to knock violently. I went out and opened the gate for him. He was undressed in an unbelted white tunic, wearing elaborate sandals. And he said to me, Perpetua, come. We are waiting for you. Then he took my hand and we began to walk through the rough and broken country. At last we came to the amphitheater out of breath and he led me into the center of the arena. Then he told me, do not be afraid. I am here struggling with you. Then he left. I looked at the enormous crowd who watched in astonishment. I was surprised that no beasts were let loose on me, for I knew that I was condemned to die by the beast. Then out came an Egyptian against me, a vicious appearance, together with his seconds to fight with me. There, was all, there also came up to me some handsome young men to be my seconds and assistants. All right, so that's an excerpt from the diary again. Perpetua, she's a young Christian, and she's someone who is being educated, getting ready for baptism, and she realizes that she's been sentenced to die by the beast, but as things unfold, she has a few visions while she's in prison, and she meets another girl named Felicity who actually is having a child and there, and they end up giving both of their, their children away to other Christian families to, to raise them in the event of their martyrdom. And ultimately, we find that, that she embraces her death, even reaching out to grab the sword and pull it over to her throat where she's eventually killed by having her, her throat slit. So my question is this, can we take inspiration from this diary, the record of someone chronicling their last moments before they go up before the amphitheater for their own death. Now, again, as we fear from this, she doesn't die in the midst of this. This is, she comes back, there's a few events where they, they take them up and torture them, but do we, or she does die eventually, but not from the excerpt that we were reading. What do we think of this? Hot, not, or sanctified? 
The Diary of Perpetua. Um, I think initially, anytime we read uh, such sad stories, um, we, we want to say not just because we, we don't want to be faced with the reality of them, but we do find inspiration in them. So um, about the courage that one can have and understanding who they are called to be. So it, hot. Anthony? Um, I would, you know, as far as uh, hot normally, I guess one could say is equated with being a good thing. So in that sense, it's not necessarily hot, but in terms of, you know, the inspiration it gives. And also, you know, I find the the vision that she had to be very, very interesting, and it would be a compelling one for me. And that is inspiring in itself also, you know, to know that you may be facing martyrdom, but then, you know, here's a vision for you to remind you that there is the martyrdom is not going to be the end of you, yeah. you know, even though it is going to be so terrible. So I would say hot. Yeah, and I say hot as well. I think it's fantastic. However... We're not done with this one just yet because we're going to do hot, not a sanctified again because there's a problem. A lot of people have tried to cast out all the, the information and even the, the diary of Perpetua herself because they can connect it with Montanism. Now, last week in episode, uh, I believe, 30 of Tools for Liberty, we talked about Montanus and Maximilla and Priscilla, these heretics who were officially denounced by the church. They were people who created quite a bit of problem. And this is relevant because Perpetua, she's converted into Christianity in a sect that may or may not have some ties to Montanism. There's been some historical claims that there may be influence of this, and there may not be. What is special about Montanism and Montanus is Montanus was a heretic who claimed that the Holy Spirit did not come at Pentecost, but instead it came within himself and the two prophetesses that were part of the, the movement he was founding. And again, they claimed that it's internal where the Holy Spirit originates, not something external. The Holy Spirit doesn't come in the past at Pentecost. It is fulfilled within us here and now. And if you don't believe us, there's no salvation for you. Um, eternal damnation is coming your way. And let's actually take a few seconds to look at Montanus, and then we'll come back and see if that mars Perpetua. They may have told you that my name is Montanus, but uh, this is a lie. I am the father, the plectrum. They want to tell you that the Holy Spirit was fulfilled at Pentecost. But no, I am the plectrum. These thugs at Kingdom of the Lagos, they want to teach you morality, that it will come from something not within yourself, but do not believe them, for I bring you the new prophecy. You must listen to me. Okay, so that was Montanus. He wants you to listen to him. Uh, I would recommend not. He's been officially <laughs> ruled a heretic. We are here to teach you morality, but don't just take it from us. We are not saying that morality begins with us. It begins with God and comes to rest upon us. And the question we have for Perpetua is... Do we cast her out and saying not because of the loose connection with Montanism, again, which is not actually proven? There's a good chance that even though the Montanism movement, which begins in somewhere between 157 and 172, and again, she's at 203, it's a bit of a time gap there. She may have never heard anything about Montanism, this notion that the Holy Spirit did not come at Pentecost. But there have been a lot of people who want to say that there's some connection there, and therefore we must throw out the, the diary of Perpetua and... 
And it's, I think that's a bad place to be. Our culture is at this place where if we can connect anybody to anything, there's no forgiveness. Um, that's very much connected to Montanism even of itself, the fact that there's no forgiveness. Um, so what do you all think? Does that ruin Perpetua, this connection to Montanism, or is it so loose that we can just dismiss it? Or are we people that say, well, even if there was an element of that there, it's obvious that her motives were were clearly connected to Christ and we can have forgiveness for either way. Right, so I think we would have to read more of, of her writings and, and understand what she was saying. And so the purpose of her writings are really to give inspiration. She's telling the story of not only herself, but others who were in that uh, the same situation who are about to be executed. And in that, there's nothing in her works that is exceedingly heretical. There, there's no claim of that would be anything that would be against the church as it stands now or even then. Um and so there's nothing she's doing that's trying to lead people astray is kind of the point I'm going towards. And we have to hear what she was trying to say. And, and there's lots of people who have done some great things and, and some bad things. And it's easy to just say that one bad thing, you know, discounts one good thing. But again, we've kind of, we're starting from a bad foundation. And we have to hear what people are trying to say and what they're doing with their lives. Um, and surely that there are bad people that we should definitely discount and say that, you know, um, even if they say two plus two equals four, that's still true, even if an evil person is saying it. Um, so we have to look at lives a little bit more holistically. I think particularly for, um, uh, I forgot her name, Perpetua. Perpetua. For Perpetua, we don't need to discount her works just because they may have been or are tied uh, to this one heretic. Yeah, and I, I think that's a great way to take this. Simply saying, there is no evidence that she is advocating for any sort of heresy, but there is evidence that she is chronicling the faith of, of people who were called by Christ, and that's admirable in and of itself. So I don't think it mars it. Well, we'll go ahead and wrap this segment up now, and then we'll be back with a devotional. Righty. For our final segment, we're going to wrap things up with a devotional, and I'm going to hand it off to Amanda. All right. Uh, so uh, we at Trinity Church um, have been following the lectionary, so the text for that we're doing right now is going to be the lectionary text for this upcoming Sunday, and it comes from Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. So um, hear the word of the Lord. As for you, you are dead in your transgressions and sins, in which you used to live, when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who now is at the work of those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ, even when we were dead in our transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus, in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace, expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith and not of this of yourselves. It is a gift of God, not by works so that no one can boast. For we are God's handiwork created in Christ Jesus to do works which God prepared us in advance for us to do. 
All right, so that's kind of the passage, and we hear this. Paul is writing to a church that is trying to figure out what it means to be saved. Up to this point in church history, there's been no great council, no large volumes of theo- theological dictionaries, no articles of faith. So the church is trying to figure out what does it mean? What is Christ's actions on the cross? Many have stipulated that since Christ was Jewish and Yahweh is the God of Israel, then salvation and reconciliation can only happen through the traditions and rituals of Judaism. However, Paul's writings state that this is simply not true. There's no great work that we can do to reconcile ourselves to God within our own power. The only work is Jesus' death, or life, death, and resurrection. We must be willing to accept and participate, but we can never work towards our salvation. However, that's just the context that Paul writes in. And as I heard this text and have been reading this text, I wonder if Paul would write it a little bit differently for us today. You see, the people at that time were starting with a works-based faith and moving into understanding grace-based faith. But for us who have had this long history, we've almost become lazily reliant on this idea of grace, and it's a bad uh, idea of, of, of grace. So, like I said, a lot has changed, and maybe Paul, instead of emphasizing all those nine verses before where he talks about God's salvation through grace, maybe he would emphasize that final verse. He would be quick to remind us, Paul would be quick to remind us that though we are saved through grace and not works, we are not entitled to be lazy. With our salvation comes a call. This call is to participate with God's work of love and redemption. Another great theologian, Bonhoeffer, who uh, was in the early 1900s and was uh, a German minister who would be later killed by the Nazi regime, he would refer to this lazy acceptance of salvation as cheap grace. Cheap grace is a grace that does not transform. It does not call to working, to loving, to living out that faith. It, it's cheap grace is kind of like a treadmill that sits in a corner, never used. Um, you can't be healthy just because someone gave you an exercise machine. You have to use it. You have to be disciplined. You have to work. God's call to salvation invites us to receive God's grace, to move out of brokenness, and to do that which we have been created to do. We are God's handiwork, and we have work to do. Excellent and well stated, Pastor Amanda. And we're going to go ahead and wrap up our program today. If you enjoyed us, you can find us on Facebook, SoundCloud, iTunes, and CastBox. Again, our podcast is free to download. You can take it and download it. You can grab a link to it, share it with your your friends and family. If you really enjoyed our podcast, please share a link to our content. It will help us out tremendously just to bring more people into our audience. Again, if you would like for us to answer some of your own questions, please send us a comment or a, a private message to me on any of the social media sites. And thank you so much for watching, and I hope you have a blessed day.